was buried with her baby blue 1964 Ferrari. That's a good-looking little car there, isn't it? Her grave is next to her husband at the Alamo Cemetery in San Antonio, and it's become a tourist attraction. In 1984, Willie Stokes Jr. of Chicago was interred in a coffin that was styled like a Cadillac Seville. It had actual functioning head and tail lights. The event was even immortalized in a song by rocker Stevie Ray Vaughan. Another Cadillac fan was Aurora Shook, who was buried in Aurora, Indiana in 1989 with her 1976 Cadillac Eldorado convertible. With the top down, the coffin was placed over the back seat. Sixteen grave sites were required to fit the car, one of the largest Cadillacs ever made. George Swanson of Pennsylvania had his ashes interred with his 1984 red Corvette. In 2009, Lonnie Holloway and his 1973 Pontiac Catalina went into the ground in South Carolina. And his sister said, it's something he always wanted to do, but I didn't like it. I found all of these little anecdotes and more in a New York Times article entitled, You Can Take It With You if the grave is deep enough. Well, nice try, New York Times, but uh, I think the following saying is far more biblical. You can't take it with you, can you? You just can't. The love of money or cars or things is a disease that can easily grab hold of me or of you. In this final chapter of His first letter to Timothy, Paul helps Timothy and he helps us focus on what is truly valuable, and that is our faith in Jesus Christ. As I mentioned, this is our final sermon in this first Timothy series entitled Healthy Church. I've enjoyed studying this letter together with you because it addresses very real problems that any church congregation might have to deal with. And we've looked at a lot of those along the way. And what could be more down to earth than the topic of money? Most of us have heard the quote, money is the root of all evil. Well, that's actually a misquote of what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. Paul did not say that money in and of itself is evil. Rather, he said, it's the love of money that causes us so much trouble. Here's exactly what Paul told the young preacher Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10. Let's read it together. The words will be on the screen. Paul wrote, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content." But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So it's not money. But it is the love of money that it is at the root of all kinds of evils. Think about this. When homicide detectives set out to solve a a murder, one of the first things that they do is they look to see who would have gained financially from the death. 
Crimes of all kinds often are solved when they ask or when they say, follow the money, follow the money. I read a recent survey where people were asked, what would you do, what would you be willing to do for $10 million? And two-thirds of the Americans that were polled in this particular poll said they would do one or more of the following things. If they were to get a, a, a gift of $10 million, they would be willing to give up their American citizenship. They would be willing to withhold testimony and let a murderer go free. They would be willing to kill a stranger. They would be willing to become a prostitute for a week. They would be willing to leave their spouse. And some even said they would be willing to put their children up for adoption for $10 million. So if you ask me, that's a pretty good list, a pretty good description of what Paul calls all kinds of evils. In his letter, Paul gives Timothy practical advice for how to avoid the ruin, the destruction, and the grief that so often comes when we become entangled with the love of money, with the pursuit of wealth. So we're going to look at three truths surrounding this, this idea. And the first truth is simply this. God is best. God is best. In verse 17, Paul tells Timothy, As for the rich in this present age, Timothy, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You see, God is best. Our hope, our certainty, our comfort, our confidence, our security, these all come from having a hope that is set first on God because, as Paul says in this text, riches are uncertain. If you don't believe me, just for a moment, Think about what's going on in our world today. Inflation, we're experiencing that, aren't we? Rising prices for gas and for groceries and, for, well, for everything else. And, and then a declining or a roller coaster of a stock market. Does anybody have a, a 401k retirement account? Have you looked at that lately? Seen what it's done in the last year? I love how clearly the, the message translation, it's a modern translation, emphasizes this passage. Listen to these words. Timothy. Tell those rich in this, world's, in this world's wealth to quit being so full of themselves and so obsessed with money, which is here today and gone tomorrow. Tell them instead to go after God, who piles on all the riches we could ever ma manage. To do good, to be rich in helping others, to be extravagantly generous. If they do that, they'll build a treasury that will last, gaining life that is truly life. That's verses 17 through 19 of chapter 6. Well, some of you might be thinking about this time, well, I, maybe I can uh, get ready for my Sunday morning nap right about now. This part is certainly for somebody else because I, I might be a lot of things, but I am not rich. So Rob, I'm going to tune out. Well, don't doze off just yet, okay? Do you realize that by first century standards that everyone sitting in this auditorium today Everyone tuning in via the live stream, every one of us listening to my voice is a rich person. In fact, by the, the standards of most of the world today, all of us are incredibly 
wealthy. I found a kind of a cool and interesting website, to me at least. It's called uh, How Rich Am I? How Rich Am I? And uh, you can go to the website and you can plug in your annual income and find out how wealthy you are in comparison to the other 7.5 or so billion people that live on this planet. So I, I did some quick figuring here, and I put in the very modest figure of 17000 $420. I chose that amount because that is the current official relative poverty level for a family of two in the United States, according to the U.S. government, $17,420. And what I found is that someone that the U.S. government says is living on the edge of poverty in this country is among the 20% of the richest people in the world. Think about that for a moment. I would guess that most of us here today are probably in probably the top 10% of the richest people in the world. Just let that settle in for just a moment. So guess what? When Paul talks about those who are rich in this present world, guess who he's talking about? He's talking about me. And he's talking about you. That is why Paul's reminder to us is to put our hope in God and not in our income or our 401k or our credit cards or the government or the lottery or inheriting from family or wherever else wealth might come from. So how can we tell if we are putting our hope in God? Well, Paul put this command in the context of money, and I think he did that for a reason. So it stands to reason that our bank account might help us to know just where we're putting our hope. So here's a little challenge for you today. When you get home today, later this afternoon, Take a look at your, your online account or your checkbook register or your spreadsheet or under your mattress or wherever it is you keep your money. Whatever method you use to keep track of your finances, your spending. And, and I want you to just think about this. What is at the top of your list? What do you spend the most money on? What do you spend money on consistently? Month after month, week after week. What kind of priority does God have in that budget? That same website that I mentioned earlier also allows us to see where we would be if we would, were to just give 10%, or you could put any percent in, but I put in 10%. If we were just to give away 10% of our money, all right? And even those on the very edge of poverty, that 17,400 and some dollar thing I meant, according to US calculations, if we were to give away 10%, they would still be in the wealthiest 23% of all the people in the world. That means the poorest person in America has more than 77% of everybody else around the world, even when they give 10% of it away. Think about that. What would it be like if God's people really lived like they believed that God is best? What if we really put our trust in God rather than our wealth? It's interesting that, you know, you look at a U.S. dollar, and what does it say on there? In 
God we trust. Do you? Or do you trust in that money? What if our consistent choice was to choose to live on nine-tenths of our income with God's blessing rather than to try to live on our own, on all of our income, without the promise of God's blessing? And so the first step to avoiding the love of money is to understand that God is best and we're called to put our hope in him. The love of money or Cadillacs or things is a disease that can easily grab hold of me and of you. And so we must understand completely what is truly valuable, our faith in Jesus Christ. Once we understand that God is best, the next step is to give generously, to give generously. In verse 18, Paul told Timothy to teach the church they are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. That's chapter 6, verse 18. And so when you get right down to it, what keeps people in the church from being generous? In many cases, we want to give. But our personal finances are in such a mess that we can't pay our regular bills, much less share with others. We feel that way. And you know that I found this out this week as I was doing some research. The average American carries $92,727 in consumer debt. Think about that. Consumer debt includes a variety of, of personal credit accounts, such as credit cards and auto loans and personal loans, student loans, $92,000 plus. I, I read recently that almost 70% of Americans own so much on unsecured debt that they are only paying the minimum charge. And at that rate, they will never, ever, ever get out of debt. I read about one young couple who was struggling financially, and so they decided to do something about it. And so they sat down together to work out a budget, and after much analysis, the, the young wife said to her husband, look, look, honey, this is how we can solve our, our troubles. If we miss two payments on the furniture loan and skip one payment on the house, we'll have enough money to make that down payment on the new car. <laughs> That's a joke, obviously. And we can laugh about it, but the debt trap is a serious problem for a lot of families. And it is hard, if not impossible, to have your life in order if your finances are out of control. And so I want you to know, if you are struggling in this area, there are people right here in our church that can provide you with some basic financial counseling and also point you towards some valuable resources that can help you to come up with a plan to climb out of debt so that you can fulfill this calling from God to live generously. And so if you're struggling in that area, I want to encourage you to privately talk to one of our elders, and they would be willing to point you in the right direction if you need this kind of help. But it is also important to know that you can begin living a generous life today, right now, even if you feel that you don't have the money to give. 
Look again at this first part of verse 18, where Paul tells Timothy to instruct the church, and remember, that's us, instruct them, they are to do good and to be rich in what? Good works. You see, money is not the only means by which we can measure our wealth. Two other valuable resources that we can share are our time and our talents, our skills and abilities. We can share with others by investing our time in people, in serving, in ministries, in volunteering. We can share our skills and help do things that others are unable to do. Let me give you some examples. We had a group of guys in our church that this last year, uh, after all the fires upriver, they participated in a, an organization here put on by One Hope called Sheds of Hope. And different churches and nonprofits, they built these sheds that were then transported upriver and put together on site so that people could have a, a visible symbol of rebuilding on their property. All those hundreds and hundreds of people that, that lost their homes. That was guys in our church sharing their time and their talents. Some of you shared your finances to make that possible. So there's one example. Here's another example. Twice a month, people from our congregation provide lunch and take it down and serve it at Everyone Village, a homeless uh, transitional program that we've been working with over the last number of months. So there's another example. All kinds of things are going on, outreach events, like our Hydro Day today that you saw folks setting up for as you drove into the parking lot. Project Hope, which we mentioned a few weeks ago, and it's coming up in a few weeks at the end of the month, where we give away backpacks and brand new pairs of shoes to school children uh, in need. Uh, those are just a few of the things that are going on. And then there are many things outside the walls of the church. Not all of our good works and doing good and ministry has to take place in a, in a church ministry. I'm aware of people in our church that volunteer at Food for Lane County or in some of our local hospitals or for Love for Lane County or many other nonprofits. Some folks serve in, in hospice and on and on the list could go. People who are investing their time and their talent, and yes, their treasures, into meeting needs by giving generously. So whether we choose to share our treasure or our time or our talents, we are able to begin fulfilling the command of 1 Timothy 6.18, which is to give generously. Because friends, this is the kind of life that truly makes us rich. See, money will never truly satisfy us, but serving God always does. Listen to this nugget of wisdom from earlier up in this passage in chapter 6, in verses 6 through 8, where Paul writes to Timothy and he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Content. Isn't that a great word? Just saying it kind of makes you relax. Contentment. It's amazing what can be accomplished by someone who combines the two qualities that Paul mentions here. Godliness and contentment. We can see this 
as an example in a, a, a story a, a, about a, the life of a lady that I read about recently. Her name is Osceola McCarty. And Osceola McCarty was a quiet, unassuming woman who died at the age of 91. As a, as a young child, Osceola would come home from elementary school and iron clothes. She would stash the money she earned, the coins, into her doll buggy. When her aunt, who was raising her, returned from a hospitalization, unable to walk, Osceola dropped out of the sixth grade to care for her aunt and to take up her work as a washerwoman. And Osceola never returned to school. Work became the great good of her life, explained one person who knew her. She found beauty in its movement and pride in its provisions. She was happy to have it and gave herself over to it with abandon. She learned to work hard and to love it. Osceola herself put it this way. She said, I knew there were people who didn't have to work as hard as I did, but it didn't make me feel sad. I love to work. And when you love to do something, those things don't bother you. Sometimes I work straight through two or three days. I had goals I was working toward. That motivated me and I was able to push harder. Work is a blessing. As long as I am living, I want to be working at something. Just because I am old doesn't mean I can't work. She made that statement when she was 85 years old. Just because I'm old doesn't mean I can't work. I love that. She goes on. Listen to what she says. She says, I commenced to save my money. I would never take any of it out. I just put it in. It's not, the ones that make, uh, it's not the ones that make the big money, but the ones who know how to save, who really get ahead. You got to leave it alone long enough for it to increase, Osceola says. Of course, that, that requires some self-discipline, doesn't it? And modest appetites. Listen to what she says. My secret was contentment. There's that word. I was happy with whatever I had said Miss McCarthy. These sturdy habits ran together to produce McCarthy's final secret. When she retired at the age of 88, her hands painfully swollen with arthritis, this washerwoman, who had been paid in little piles of coins and dollar bills her entire life, had $280,000 in the bank. And even more startling, she decided to give most of that money away, not as a bequest after she died, but immediately. And so she began to do just that, making decisions about who to give amounts of money to. She set aside just enough to live on, but one of the donations she made was $150,000. This washerwoman, she donated $150,000 to the University of Southern Mississippi to fund scholarships for worthy but needy students seeking education, the kind of education that she never had. Well, when others in her community found out what she'd done, over 600 men and women there in Hattiesburg and beyond made donations that more than tripled her original endowment. And so 
even up to today, the university presents several full tuition scholarships in the name of Osceola McCarty to students in need. Isn't that an amazing story? But here's here's the kicker. Here's the important part. In addition to the dignity of work, McCarty's satisfactions were the timeless ones. She said her great satisfactions were her faith in God and her family. One friend described McCarty's faith as as simple as the Sermon on the Mount and as difficult to practice. Ms. McCarty was baptized at age 13 in a local pond while dressed all in white. That was a, a mixed blessing for someone who washed all of her clothes by hand, right? She said, I start each day on my knees saying the Lord's Prayer, then I get busy about my work. That's what Miss Osceola told one interviewer. She said, you have to accept God the best way you know how, and then he'll show himself to you. And the more you serve him, the more able you are to serve him. This is a wise, wise woman. When asked about her philosophy of life, Osceola said she believed in trusting God and living by his word. Somehow, through all the years of her life, up until age 88, she was able to work steadily, budget carefully, save consistently, invest wisely, and yes, give generously. She certainly lived by the principles of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Listen again to Paul's words when he said, They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And so you see, Osceola McCarty did more than lay up treasure here on earth. She laid up treasure in heaven because she knew that God is best. Therefore, she was able to give generously. Well, finally, Paul gives one more instruction to Timothy to teach to the church, and that is to guard your gift. To guard your gift. This is in verses 20 and 21. Listen to what he says. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. You know, if if you're a diabetic, your doctor will likely tell you to be on guard about your diet. Is that right? Be on guard for your eyesight. Be on guard to take care of your feet. Be on guard. If you have heart issues, heart problems, you have to be on guard about your stress level. You have to be on guard for your cholesterol. You have to be on guard with your exercise routine. You have to be on guard with your blood pressure. Be on guard. Well, friends, we must also be on guard against the love of money, which is the root of all kinds of evil. You see, the love of money is what is the heartbeat of the American dream, that we, what we call the American dream. We may think that since we're not exactly swimming in cash that we don't 
face any danger. But the tendency to fall in love with money or the thought patterns that go with that are a danger for everyone. Whether you have a big fat bank account or nothing at all. You see, it is the American way of life. The American dream of self-made success, financial stability, and ease. That's all around us continually. And friends, it's not just here in America. A few years back, a financial advisor by the name of Ron Blue visited a rural village in Africa. And he asked one of the village elders, what is the biggest problem in your village? Now, he fully expected this man to share about a food shortage or a lack of medical supplies or a lack of clean water. But he was not prepared for the answer that he received. This wise village elder said back to him, our big problem here in our village is materialism. Think about that. Mr. Blue said, what do you mean? And the village elder explained, if a man has a mud hut, he wants one made of stone. If he has a thatch roof, he wants a tin roof. If he has one acre, he wants two. Materialism, you see, is a disease of the heart. It's quite independent of the level of a person's income, how much wealth that they've amassed. And so, as followers of Jesus Christ, like Timothy, we are called to guard the deposit that is entrusted to us. NBA Hall of Fame coach Pat Riley popularized popularized the term, the disease of more. Riley has noted that many championship professional teams in in the NFL in Major League Baseball, in the NBA, in the National Hockey League, Riley says many of these teams never repeat after winning a championship. And Riley says he believes that the main factor is that the team is defeated from within, not from without. He goes on and he says, the players want more. At first, the more was winning the championship. But once the players have the championship, it's no longer enough. The more becomes other things. More money, more TV commercials, more endorsements, more accolades, more playing time, more plays called for them, more media attention. And as a result, what was once a cohesive group of hard-working athletes begins to fray. Egos get involved. Gatorade bottles are thrown. And the mental attitude of the team changes and the perfect chemistry becomes a toxic mess. Riley says players feel entitled to ignore the small routine tasks that actually lead to winning a championship, believing that they've earned the right not to do it anymore. Then what was the most talented team ends up failing. Riley observes that what they didn't realize is just what they were trading off. They were no longer able to focus on the nitty-gritty of their sport. And as a team, they suffered. 
Ultimately, they were dethroned, not by others, not by better teams, not by more skilled players, but dethroned by forces from within themselves. Well, friends, the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, the reality of salvation and our hope for eternity beyond this life is the great treasure that has been entrusted to each one of us who have chosen to follow Jesus Christ. You see, it is our winning formula, if you will. It is our championship. And when trust is broken by pursuing materialism, wealth, or man-made dreams, or goals, or philosophies, we are in danger, as Paul writes in the text, of swerving from the faith. And so, brothers and sisters, we must do all that we can to keep this trust entrusted to us by God by avoiding the myriad of babble and contradictions that this world has to offer. And there are a lot of them, aren't there? The babble and contradictions in the area of finances or in politics or in sexuality or education or on and on that list could go. Instead, may we be people fully focused on the truth of the gospel. That is the treasure entrusted to each one of us who would follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we live in a world that is in full pursuit of wealth, of being comfortable, of things, of what is new and improved and better. And Father, in the midst of all this, you call us as your sons and daughters to remain focused on what is truly of value, and that is our relationship with you and the hope that you have implanted in us for eternity when we choose to follow Jesus. Father, we pray that through your Holy Spirit that you would strengthen us. Father, that you would convict us when we are sidetracked, when we've swerved off the path that you've set us on, Lord. May we make the corrections necessary so that we can stay fully focused on the way that we should go so that we can protect the, the valuable deposit that you have placed in each one of us who make Jesus the Lord of our life. Guide us this day, this week, and throughout the rest of our lives, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, in a few moments, we're going to share together in the Lord's Supper. And uh, the Lord's Supper is a, a gift from the Lord, isn't it? It's a gift that he has left for us. It is a physical and practical way of focusing on the treasure that has been entrusted to us who are followers of Jesus. And that treasure is salvation. And so for each person who has committed to make Jesus Lord, that is master, ruler of their life, he in turn makes 
the payment for our salvation. The bread and the cup remind us that Jesus made a gift. And that gift, while it is offered freely to anyone who would receive it, is very, very expensive. And it is Jesus himself who paid the price by willingly giving up his life, his body, his blood, as a payment for my sins, for yours. And so he invites us to remember this truth in this time of communion. In the auditorium at the back and at the front here, there are four tables. In a few moments when the music plays, we invite you to just to make your way to one of the tables. If you have trouble uh, getting to one of those tables, simply raise your hand and somebody will bring the bread and the cup right to where you're sitting. But I want to just encourage us together. Let us mindfully reflect on the treasure, the treasure that's been entrusted to each one of us. As the music plays, we invite you to come. Let's pray together and then we'll share together in this meal. Father, we pray for your your blessing, Lord, as we reflect on what you have done for us. Lord, on the impossibility of having a relationship apart from Jesus. And Father, on this magnificent gift that you've entrusted to each one who would receive it. Bless this time as we reflect, as we remember, as we commune, and as we praise the name of the gift giver, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.